African brilliance can be everywhere, just other um, smart young people from other parts of the world. African students can be in global universities in quantities reflective of the population size, of the brilliance on the continent. I, I want to enable that and all the tools that I have gathered allow me to do that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the WorldWise podcast, where we talk about the intersections of education, culture, and migration. I'm your host, Rajika Pandari. This episode is very timely because on November 15, 2022, which was just some days ago, the world's population was supposed to reach 8 billion people and is projected to reach almost 10 billion in 2050. Much of this growth will be concentrated in just eight countries, of which five are in Africa. In fact, countries in sub-Saharan Africa will likely contribute to more than half the growth anticipated through 2050. To frame this in both demographic and educational terms, much of the world's young talent already comes from places like India and Africa and will increasingly do so in the future. But how do we harness this talent, particularly from Africa, and why is it critical to create global opportunities for African students? Here to talk about these issues is Dr. Lydia Kemunto Bozere, who is the founder and CEO of the aptly named 8B Education Investments, a financial and education technology platform specialized in lending to African students to attend world-class global universities and supporting them to succeed. A Kenyan national, Lydia brings to the field of innovative finance her personal experience and over 18 years working on issues of international politics, development and human rights. She's had a long and illustrious career in the development sector, which I had the opportunity to learn more about in this wonderful conversation. Take a listen. Lydia, I'm so happy to have you here today on the WorldWise podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rajika, for having me. So I am always interested in education, as you know, I, and I and I always want to begin my conversations with education. And of course, so much about this podcast is about education. So I'm fascinated by the fact that I think you have four higher education degrees, including uh, graduate degrees and a PhD from institutions like Oxford and Cornell. So I'm just really curious where and how did your educational journey begin. Thank you so much, Rajika, for that. Yes, I do have four degrees. and um, uh, But when I started out, I don't think I intended to, you know, be a degree collector, though that's not quite what I became. But um, I watched the process of getting my education ended up being was a massive exercise in market research in mm -hmm. the various ways in which global education does not serve 
African learners. And that has become my journey. But that journey started in Kenya, where I was born and raised. I studied there until high school, at which point I got a scholarship to go to school in the UK. And Rajika, the exercise of getting that scholarship, I tell that story as a series of accidents that had to be true one after another in order for it to happen. Meanwhile, all that information that I accidentally found can be systematized. And that's what yes. we are doing at 8B to remove that serendipity that becomes uh, the, 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 you know, the series of accidents. So I then, you know, went to school in the UK for, uh, got a scholarship to the UK for high school and then got another scholarship to study in Cornell um, and, you know, worked in international development. I have spent many years in the multilateral system across the UN. I've worked at the World Bank, a variety of places that I was really grateful to work in Rajika because it's on issues that I care deeply about that affect countries like Kenya. But the thing that I kept coming to is how do I make sure that the rooms in which I am in have more people like me? How do I make mm -hmm. sure that I'm not the last person in that room who has my lived experience? And that kept, kept on taking me back to the series of accidents at the beginning of my education that led to me taking the journey that I took. And now at 8B, I really am working to make that pathway accessible to more people. Right. And I want to definitely get more into that as we continue our conversation. Uh, but I think that's so powerful. Um, two things that you said that, you know, having those sorts of opportunities should not be a series of accidents and serendipity. Um, and the second being that, you know, you didn't you didn't want to be seen as sort of the token representative in the room for sort of where you come from and, and who you are. So, you know, the the other thing I've been learning about you that is that you've done, my goodness, just an astonishing number of things in your life. And you know, I almost want to ask you, how old are you? Which I'm not going to ask you on this podcast. But when I looked at your CV and I've gotten to know you, I just keep thinking, how has this woman accomplished all of these different things? And you worked in so many different sectors. So I'm curious, how would you describe yourself to a stranger who doesn't know you at all? How would you describe yourself in a couple of sentences? And sort of what would be your elevator sort of elevator pitch, so to speak? So, Rajika, first, thank you for your kind words. And no, I will not answer the question of how yes, old I am. I think enough. It's, enough, it's enough to say that I'm a hustler. And I do not let opportunities pass by. If they mm. are coming my way, they're surely coming my way for a reason. So I, I yeah. always find ways of taking advantage of them. And I think that that has served me well. Um, and, and actually, that also just comes from coming from a place of low opportunity and being so lucky, as I described earlier, to find myself in a lot of opportunity. But if I were to describe myself in an elevator pitch, Rajika, I would say I am a relentless builder. I don't quit. And I, you know, I'm a recovering diplomat. Um, mm -hmm. So a recovering diplomat <laughs> who is a relentless builder, um, 
currently pursuing a vision of enabling African brilliance to have a global impact. That's longer than the elevator. I should already have arrived the seventh floor by the time I'm done with that mouthful. But um, yeah, and all those things that I have done, Rajika, have really served me well because I am fluent in the ways that the world changes, the initiatives that are out there, the instruments that we we have that serve other sectors. And my fortune has been to sit in the intersection of many of those processes and absorb them so that when I am now shaping how I want to change the world, it's possible to take very many different tools together and say, I have seen this work and I think it can work for us if you believe in this end goal and the end goal being that African brilliance can be everywhere, just like mm-hmm. other um, smart young people from other parts of the world. African students can be in global universities in quantities reflective of the population size, of the brilliance on the continent. I, I want to enable that and all the tools that I have gathered allow me to do that. Exactly. So I love that phrase, recovering diplomat. Um, And that kind of leads me into something else that I wanted to ask you that I was uh, quite struck by. Um, I read somewhere that uh, when you were growing up, and you, of course, referenced this earlier, you've had a lot of experience working in the multilateral sector. But I read somewhere that um, growing up, your ambition was to work for a large multilateral organization like the UN or the World Bank. And I laughed so hard when I read this, uh, Lydia, because I almost felt like, oh, my goodness, that is the same aspiration that uh, my father actually had for me that I nurtured for a while. And it really got me thinking that what is it about the stature and sort of almost glamour of these organizations that draws um, people, young people from the global south looking to these organizations as sort of aspiring to one day be uh, be a part of them. But um, yeah, back to you. So why this aspiration and how did that dream eventually shape up for you? Tell us a little bit about that. For me, the... Genesis of that has to be the same as for many young people in the global south, which is the multilateral system for many countries that are developing economically, that is typically where power seems to lie, where resources seem to lie, where decision-making seems to lie. Those are the people that seem to decide the direction of travel and seem to set the terms of reference. And I wanted to be there. And what was really interesting is that that thought continued when I went to high school after I left Kenya and went to the UK on the scholarship that I ran into accidentally. Um, Mm -hmm. Not to say it was not rigorous, it was thoroughly, thoroughly rigorous as a process, but the arriving at the scholarship process is, is the, you know, accidentally running into it. Anyway, I digress. Uh, when I was in the United World Colleges, which is where I went for high school, it was a very idealistic place. The UWC system is where you take 17 to 18-year-olds and tell them the many ways in which they can change the world and then send them forth to do so. So it was a place where it was natural for all of us to be wanting to be in systems that we truly believed are bolder shifters in how the world changes. And I, I dare say I continued thinking this way until 
into my mid-20s, I would say, because I was interviewed for both the Young Professional Program at the World Bank and something called the LEAP Program. I don't know that they have the LEAP Program anymore mm. at UNDP, which was the, ent- the way you enter in the bureaucracy, if you will. There are very many ways of working in these spaces, but one of them is having, you know, a pathway that is shaped and directed by the organization as a way of getting young talent from the beginning right right into leadership. Mm -hmm. And I was really lucky to be interviewed for both of those. And I didn't get either of them. And Rajika, I remember thinking, oh my God, so what's my life going to be if I cannot work at the World Bank and I cannot work in UNDP? This, mm-hmm. you know, this is the end of my life as I know it. And then, you know, you realize that there are so many things that you should be doing with yourself. But at that point in my life, Rajika, if you had told me that I would find myself working in the plumbing of systems, right? Because finance is the plumbing of systems. Education is the plumbing of systems. It's the thing that enables what we see to be how it is it isn't an end in itself or it can be an end in itself but in the world that i am sh- i'm building or the world that i want to the change i want to see in the world education and financing are things beneath what ends up happening in the end in my mid 20s if you had told me i would end up there i would have been um I wouldn't have believed you because that's not what was exciting. What was exciting was being in the sharp end of policy. You know, how do we make sure that, you know, the last word that is being said on how item X must look is something that I have had a say in. And what I realized over time, Rajika, is that power lies elsewhere. Um, It's Mm. in the people who are in the room. And how do we, you know, what... What leads to the people being in the room looking like they do? That's where you change. It's not by being the only person in the room. It's by having 10 people like you in the room. And the way you get 10 people like you in the room is to step away from the room and figure out how did we all end up in this room in Mm -hmm. order to shape that and change that. So back to your question of, you know, how did that dream shape up for me in a I have been a very, very lucky person and I did end up working at both the UN and the World (laughs) Bank. And that was through very good networks that I had as I was doing the things I cared deeply about. I was an activist in global health. I worked on post-conflict questions. Again, these are, you know, the, the, the kinds of challenges that face the kinds of countries I'm familiar with and care deeply about. And as I was doing that work, forged the kinds of networks that opened up doors for me to work in these institutions that I had in my earlier life wanted to work in. And when I got there, I realized I didn't want to be in the room. I wanted to be behind (laughs) the room. And so I went into the plumbing. And that, Rajika, really is the more interesting question. What did my mother say when I left? (laughs) And it was with great shock when I told them, I no longer want to do this. I want to go somewhere entirely different and do it as an entrepreneur. Um, But yeah, these systems are with us in the global south. The multilateral system still holds great, great sway, and um, it can work so much more inclusively, and it can have many, many more lived experiences stewarding it. And, you know, both that system and many, many systems where decisions are made um, can have a lot more of the African lived experience in them. And that's one of the things that I am now spending my time on. Wow. Just so much there to sort of think about and reflect on. What a journey. And I and I love that, that, you know, you um, 
had had an initial setback of not getting into sort of the you know the the bottom rung of that typical hierarchy in the UN and the World Bank and then you sort of come full circle and you approach it in different ways and you get involved in different ways um that's really really interesting and and I'm sure it was also an opportunity to sort of reflect on uh, you know both the pros and cons of the systems and how bureaucracy is not always the best way to get things done and I love the idea of uh, thinking of both education and um financing as sort of the plumbing uh, and and uh, really sort of the internal systems that that make everything go right so um some really great ideas there so i want to move on to focusing Rajika, in before you move mm-hmm. i would love to hear how you changed my story from... <laughs> yes Yeah so you know I um I guess I would start by saying so so my father always harbored this dream that oh well you know you got to work at the UN or you know think about working at the World Bank and very much like you described like you know entering early and then you know working your way up and for me I didn't think much about all of that till I was well into my doctoral degree and um i had ended up shaping my research in a way where i was very interested in uh, global development issues but particularly gender and education and a lot of my work and research was around examining the impacts that educating women has for societies as we know that's a it's a profound impact at many levels and so when i finished with my doctorate i decided i wanted to go into the development sector and where would i head of course the un or the world bank i came up against an interesting challenge or at least what i perceived to be what i think was the challenge um why it ultimately didn't work for me uh, and it was a barrier around language because um what i found was that especially to enter the system at that more junior entry level you need to meet a lot of specific criteria one of them is around is around language and i didn't speak any of the three sort of major global languages um of uh, either french spanish or arabic and i found that that kind of became a real barrier for me professionally in entering those sorts of organizations or that sort of multilateral system but you know very much like you um it was very interesting and i sort of write about this in my book that you know when i i moved to new york many years late this many many years later to take up a different job and lo and behold my office was located right in front of the un so remember, every single yeah. day yeah every single day i would walk to work and i would look up at the un and i would think about my father's aspirations and uh, it was really interesting that since then you know i have engaged with un agencies particularly unesco and uh, and the unesco institute of statistics and done uh, a lot of work on the unesco global monitor education monitoring report and and so really been connected with those entities in different ways like you described for yourself and um it has felt okay to sort of connect in that way and have broader impact rather than be <laughs> within the system so yeah no yeah. i i love that i love that there are so many ways of interacting with that system but also just the realization that that system has so many constraints more yes. change happens with outside of it than in it and in fact you have a lot more sway in shaping 
how you can interact with some of these entities when you're not there and when you're not tied with, you know, by the rules that are yeah. with um, within it. One day over coffee, I'll tell you how um, the World Bank Young Professionals Program interview went, which is fascinating because <laughs> I was working on an area that they did not think was useful at all. And only years later, it would become the fragility group where I would later work um, uh, when I ended up working at the bank. But yeah, these places are fascinating and really ambition ch- shaping. And yes. I want for every young person who wants to end up there to have a real chance if that's where they want mm-hmm. to end up, wherever they want mm-hmm. to end up, frankly, they, they really should have uh, a real chance and then make the kinds of choices that you and I make, which is, well, there is that and there is this other seven things. I'm going to choose thing number five, right? Yeah. Um, but the option is really the, the, the piece where uh, I feel we, we fail in our investment, um, especially for the African continent. But yeah, sorry, sorry for yes. letting me uh, interrupt your... No, your, no, no, not at all. And, um, you know, everything we're talking about is so connected. So yeah, so you mentioned the African continent, and that's exactly what I was going to shift to talking more about. And I want to zero in um, a bit on that, because really that is, that is you know, the focus of your work. And I want to start with, uh, I'm going to read out this fabulous quote that I by you that I found in the Forbes article. And I just loved it. It's so compelling. So I'm going to quote this here. I will read this out. And this is this is in, in your voice, in your words. And you say, our task is to change the place that Africa and people of African descent occupy in the global imagination as a space for others to experiment and extract, define and dominate, pity and save. People are more comfortable donating $1,000 each to 50 African women to start a basket weaving business than investing $50,000 for one African whose education will enable her to create a woven basket industry with global capital and connections that open supply chains to Target and Tesco. Wow. When I read that, I said, oh, my goodness, this is this is the entire thrust of your work. Right. So so share for our listeners uh, by what you mean here. Why is this important and how your company, 8B Investments, which you mentioned at the top of our conversation, is hoping to create change for African students? Rajika, thank you for reading that quote. And you're right. It does capture much of what drives me and therefore is the mission of the company. We see ourselves as stepping into this space of enabling African brilliance to have a global impact and to do so at scale. What I mean is your listeners may have encountered a handful of African students in their classroom if they went to a global university. They would have encountered 10 times the number of students from the Indian subcontinent, for example. But those are geographies of similar population size. And if we start from the starting point that brilliance is evenly distributed, then Mm -hmm. we have to ask, why are we finding fewer and fewer African students in those classes? classrooms and students from other regions. And the answer isn't they're not getting in. There are many, many constraints to getting in. But despite those constraints, students are applying and are getting into global universities. They're simply not able to finance it. Mm -hmm. So then we get to the next problem. 
Why are they not able to finance it? How can you have a problem at scale, a good, a service being demanded at the kind of scale that financing for African students is demanded at and there being no supply? Because that's the market failure that 8B exists to address. Now, a number of entities have started that are looking at the world of international students more broadly in order to service that gap because it's a real gap across the world, but it's particularly acute on the African continent where even secured uh, a secured loan is expensive, uh, much less an unsecured student loan with all the characteristics and uncertainties that come with, you know, someone who is young, who doesn't yet have a, uh, uh, who doesn't yet have, you know, collateral and a credit history and assets. And we're saying, you know, we are banking on the direction of travel of this person. This is going to be the young woman who will create the woven mm-hmm. basket industry. And you want to take that direction of travel, underwrite it and be the basis upon which you lend to them today. So that's the problem that we're Mm -hmm. solving at 8B. The core of the quote, however, is a commentary on the status quo. I have worked in development most of my career and what most of the financing that goes into Africa does is operate in the charity register. And in the charity register, we're looking for an outcome that can be captured. I'm, 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 I'm simplifying this. It's obviously more complex, mm-hmm. donor by donor, country by country, issue by, by issue. But on the whole, we're looking for the kind of simple story where we give a bunch of money, some, you know, mostly children or women or vulnerable group was impacted, smiling pictures for an annual report at the end of the year, big check mark situation addressed, problem solved, people saved, you know, sad child, now happy. The kinds of things we're working on, Rajiga, it's the plumbing. It's the things that take time. It's a 30-year shift in power. It isn't end-of-year annual report um, uh, uh, outcome, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a harder case to make. It is a harder case to tell people who have thought about an area as quick fix, you know, I can, you know, celebrate and go my merry way and say, no, 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 there are systems here that we can be changing. And what those systems look like for me are encapsulated in shifting from let's give a hundred basket weavers a hundred dollars each to let's take one student into the Yale School of Management because they will create an impact over time that is larger than the impact that is created by an economy that now has only basket weavers and not an increased income to enable people to even buy those baskets, right? So I feel like there is a lot that is in the development space that doesn't enable true innovation in the sense of how does power mm-hmm. shift how does the world yeah. truly change and that's the one of the you know the, one of the ways that we believe the world changes is by enabling africans to have african students builders innovators future ecosystem builders to have global opportunity and that's how the basket weaver turns into a woman that is creating a woven basket industry and expanding the pie Right, right. And, you know, you made a very good, uh, you drew a very good parallel between um, India and um, and Africa. And, you know, in one sense, uh, of course, in one case, we're talking about one country and the other continent, but 
both countries and or regions as as we know are going to really be where the world's future population comes from right and even in the case of india i would argue that you know despite uh you know the huge presence of indian international students skilled immigrants entrepreneurs what have you um in the indian diaspora both here in the us and and in other countries despite that you're absolutely right that the thinking within the donor community from even from india is very very narrow and it's really frustrated me that most of the effort is going always towards primary education or uh, secondary education and there are there is almost no investment being made um in higher education back home and so in some ways it's sort of the similar situation that you just described very evocatively that you know it's like checking a box that you've given back to your country you've invested in sort of these immediate returns and the sad child is now a smiling child but on the other hand there's this huge amount of indian college age talent that um uh, you know despite all the many who do get to come come out it's still a very it's just a sliver of the population that that actually yeah. wants access so yeah. yes those are that's, those are real challenges yeah that it's actually fascinating to me that that's the case and yet india is somewhere 5 to 10 years ahead of the african continent in terms of access to international education financing and rajika i share your your point of view which is there is a focus on let us edu- you know let's private provide literacy and that's important someone has to provide literacy and we have to provide primary education and secondary education and university education but there is the workforce for the future lane of education which is in addition to everything else we also need it it's not a luxury in fact the world needs it just as much as our countries that are the source of the students need it so it's really thinking about our interdependence in terms in in a much more innovative way understanding the brilliance can't be bounded within geography and really investing it whenever wherever it might be mm-hmm. found both for the benefit of the world that is in need of this great number of incredibly smart young people that happen to be coming from our regions and because those regions will do really well when those young people are realizing their highest potential so i think there is just a lot more that needs to be explored here right because the last thing i'll say on that point is that the reason why such an obvious conversation doesn't happen with the ease that it should is because it gets we woven into conversations around immigration which are politically fraught and mm-hmm. which then you know reason tends to leave the room when 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 some of the politically fraught conversations enter and therefore reasonable ways of thinking about how we might invest in our collective assets as humanity which is you know brilliant young minds everywhere we we don't quite end up in as a set of strategic conversations as we might um if it wasn't you know so charged um especially in some countries like the US absolutely so i have to ask you this question because i have asked this of every person on this show who's originally from the global south and in fact we've had two prior guests um whose work is also situated in africa and um rebecca ziglamano of uh, education matters as well as patrick evua who's of course the founder of ashesi uh, university in ghana and so you're the third guest to whom i have to pose this question 
What are your thoughts on brain drain? What is your specific lens on the brain drain issue? And I know you have some strong feelings about this, so so I'd love I'd love to hear about them. <laughs> Rajika, you I am so glad you asked that question because it's the question I I have to answer every day when I'm talking to potential investors. I think the concern about brain drain comes from a particular assumption about scarcity. It comes from an assumption. There are many things I can say about brain drain, and I wrote a whole article about it on Africa Report, and I can give you a link for your listeners if they're interested. Yes, please. But it, absolutely. But it comes from an assumption about scarcity. You know, when Lydia got a scholarship and left Kenya, there was a Lydia-shaped hole left in the Kenyan brilliance ecosystem. And the answer is no, there wasn't. There is so many young people who are looking for that opportunity to enter a Kenyan university and the Kenyan university system does not have enough capacity. And so when Lydia leaves, one more space becomes available for somebody else who was just one point below and who couldn't have been able to attend university to now attend university in Kenya. Once people start realizing that just because we're so few here doesn't mean we're so few, period. It's that we just very few of us are getting opportunities to be in global universities. But if financing and other barriers were removed, the the landscape would be completely transformed and they would see so much talent um, that just can realize its potential elsewhere um, and for the good of both the continent and the world. I think once they start moving away from the perception of Africa as having a scarcity of brilliance to Africa as having an abundance of brilliance, they would worry less about brain drain the way they do. And then brain drain, frankly, as an idea has outlived its usefulness. We are in the 21st century post-COVID where, you know, impact and even employment is totally decoupled from geography. We want Mm -hmm. people to have the best possible access to education. And depending on where they want to realize their highest potential to do so, because the world is very, very interdependent. And so I lean into conversations about brain drain in order to suggest that they be revised in favor of brain circulation, which is really a more apt way of thinking about how the 21st century um, is working. The other thing that I'll say, Rajika, is that the impact that I can have because I was so lucky to have the education that I did and, you know, be able to raise funds and and impact the African continent the way I am doing through HB. All of that is possible because of the pathways that were opened to me by a global education. And you may also know that the combination of overseas development assistance from, you know, official donor money, as well as um, foreign direct investments together pale in comparison with remittances. So people like me sending money home is what is a bigger number than all those Mm -hmm. official channels that we typically have. And all those things added up really suggest that we ought to be embracing of global brilliance, achieving its highest potential, wherever that might be, than being um, being concerned that, you know, somehow there is a problem with a Lydia being in New York and Kenya is somehow bereft of, of, mm-hmm. of, of Lydia because of that. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the takeaway is really sort of in 
working to increase high quality educational opportunities for students both overseas but also at home by building capacity at home as well to your yeah. earlier point that you know just if a, if a lydia leaves it doesn't mean that there aren't other talented students back home um so it's really sort of building both sides of it right absolutely there was this really uh, there was a very good quote article about university capacity on the african continent and it had this number that for the 10 most populous african countries there is one university per million inhabitants that is wow. a very 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 hard to access opportunity what it looked like when i was in high school in kenya is that the cut off point for joining university was very high and if you did not make that cut off point you wouldn't go to a public university now your parents could pay to take you to a private university or to do what they used to call parallel program i.e. you go into a public university but you're paying differently the state mm-hmm. isn't helping you pay but you the capacity for the state supported students was very small the consequence mm-hmm. of it was that we had the slag period it used to be you have you finish university and you have to wait for 2 years before your turn comes to show up in school and then that went down to maybe a year and a half but that that is the challenge the challenge is that there is so much young african talent not enough spaces in university and we have to look at the entirety of world cl- classrooms including expanding them at home but if they are available outside home how do we get african students there in in there exactly exactly so speaking of that let's talk about the new clinton global initiative commitment that your company has been spearheading and that you recently launched just a couple of months ago here in new york so share more about this and um how can universities and other organizations and entities um support this commitment thank you rajika for raising that and thank you for your partnership in that because in in one of your other hats uh, on the president's alliance mm-hmm. for education and migration um you were able within a very very short period of time to get your bureaucracy on that side to be aligned with partnering with this and that this is what are the ways in which we can enable more african access to global innovation ecosystems i was really really grateful and thrilled to be invited to make a commitment at this year's clinton global initiative meeting and what they do is really provide a platform for the various actors and stakeholders that are changing the world to basically mm-hmm. pitch a tent on their platform and bring together partners to enable that change to happen and so for us one of the the, the key announcements that we were really thrilled about was a partnership with Nelnet Bank for 30 million dollars um worth of lending for African students coming to the US it's the first time an American bank is doing that and that's going to be really game changing once we are able to get students in through that partnership because then other providers of financing can see what they're worrying about about risk or if they're worrying that there aren't mm-hmm. enough african students out there whatever their concern might be that has gotten in the way of partnering for something like this that those concerns can be addressed we in that partnership we also had the education testing service commit um you know an unprecedented number of vouchers for african students who are taking either the test of english as a foreign language or the graduate record examination but we were thrilled for the president's alliance on education and migration and their 
commitment to carry out this thought leadership about the diversity practices of mm-hmm. American colleges and universities and some of the barriers at the policy level that get in the way of international students feeling welcomed in the U.S. All of those things, Rajika, make a massive difference. And we were so grateful to bring together this like-minded group of people And that's something that we will continue to do over the next three years, expanding the tent of people who care about working with African students who want to see more of them on their campuses. So any university that is listening and wants to partner with us, we would love to have them come on board. We're doing so both for just African students coming on campus, but also African students who were displaced in Ukraine who are looking for classrooms to go to. So what are the ways in which universities can work with us to admit some of those incredibly smart students who are full of greed. They were, you know, minding their business, getting mm-hmm. a degree in in, uh, in Ukraine, and then, you know, the war broke out. Uh, but across the board, really excited that the idea that we should be investing in African brilliance, enabling access to innovation ecosystems is something that is people are embracing and saying, of course, we want diversity in our student pipelines. Of course, we want to see more, um, uh, you know, Africa, uh, African origin, Africa lived experiences, you know, learners and students and young workers um, in our various environments. And so we're really excited by the support that we have seen and that we hope to continue to see over the next three years of this commitment. And I wish you all the very best. And yes, look forward to partnering with you uh, on it through the President's Alliance on Higher Education and Immigration. And, you know, just wanted to say that uh, with the last point that you made, I think it's not just an issue of diversity. It's a global imperative, because if we look at demographics, the world's future sits in South Asia and Africa. That's where the youth population is that's rising, that needs to be educated and whose talent needs to be tapped. So it's not just a nice to have that OB expanding diversity, but it's a necessity. So Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, yeah. I like saying it that we, our regions have cornered the market of 18 <laughs> to 23 year olds. So if, uh-huh. if, if you're in any business that interacts with that demographic, you ought to be looking around the corner to those geographies. And, and you Absolutely. Know, they're just not paying as much attention to it. But, um, you know, hopefully more and more people will going forward. Absolutely. So my last question to you, um, and I always like to ask this of uh, anybody who's been an entrepreneur and you've done so many innovative and creative things in um, in your life. But as you think um, through your journey of launching initiatives and being an entrepreneur and perhaps most recently of founding and launching uh, 8B Investments, what are some two or three lessons you've learned, which is sort of almost like advice that you'd like to share or even things that you wish you had known when, when, you, when you started? Yeah, I have been humbled by the power of just showing up because mm-hmm. you never know where things might lead. And I used to think that, you know, one ought to curate very, very precisely, you know, how one goes from A to B to C. But I have found serendipity has such a big role in where what I have managed to do in my life, both professionally when I worked in the multilateral space, uh, when I have moved into entrepreneurship, even before I got into all of that, when I found opportunities to study abroad, a lot of those 
things. A red thread there is one of serendipity and if you know being at the right place at the right time. And since you don't know where the right place at the right time is, just showing up um, is really powerful. So you know, I encourage particularly those younger um, in your listenership to to consider that. I also have found that there is no substitute to networking and connecting with people. And that's a hard thing when people say networking, you never quite know what they mean. But I really think it's being open to listening to the stories of people around you and finding ways that you can be helpful to them, not because it's obvious how they might be helpful to you, but because we are all in this human journey together. And Mm -hmm. I have found that people who have been most helpful to me in many cases were people that I did not even know when we were having the initial interactions, that they would open the kinds of doors that they eventually do. So making connecting with people a daily practice, not a, I am looking for a job, therefore, or I'm looking for money, therefore, but really that daily practice of who have I not reached out to recently? Who mm-hmm. who has this thing that I just saw in the New York Times made me think of that then means that I should reach out to them and tell them about it? Like there is just that constant strengthening of those connections, I have found it to be really, really powerful. And then the last thing I'll say, and this has come out a lot from my entrepreneurship, is I love hearing no, because it means I'm asking Mm. a lot more. I'm like expanding my circles of asks. Um, And that's not something that I was good at, Rajika. Um, You know, I was trained to get A's and to do well, and therefore doors open. And, you know, my entrepreneurship journey has been a journey of very, very many no's. And Mm -hmm. I'm so excited every time I'm like making a new ask where it just might lead nowhere, but who knows, you know, some occasionally they turn into yeses. So, you know, having people move beyond the zone of comfort where you know the pe- the person you're asking or you're speaking to is a like-minded individual but entirely outside of that as you're building and growing um i think is 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 valuable and being comfortable with getting no's has been something that has been my my recent area of of expansion that i'm really thrilled to share such great um, three tips and uh, and uh, pieces of advice, Lydia, about connecting in a more genuine and authentic way with people and not just in an opportunistic way, seizing every moment and opportunity because you just don't know, you know, or seizing the moment because you just don't know where opportunity lies. Um, and then, of course, your your last point about uh, seeing the opportunity in the no <laughs> and uh, seeing the value in the yeses and the noes. So wonderful pieces of advice. And thank you so much for coming on the show today to share all of your wisdom. It's been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Radhika, for having me. It's such a pleasure talking to you. You just heard a conversation with Lydia Kemunto Bosere, the founder and CEO of 8B Investments. And I'm your host, Rajika Pandari. For other episodes where we talk about global talent and African students in particular, check out episode 7 with Rebecca Ziegler Mano of Education Matters in Zimbabwe and episode 13 with Patrick Evua of Ashesi University in Ghana. And if you like the sorts of things we talk about on this show, don't forget to grab a copy of my book, America Calling a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility. And as always, please subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. 
I will be back next week for another conversation about the intersections of education, culture and migration. 